Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2G, Women, Law and Life. There's a test for whether films are misogynistic or not. It's called the Betchendal test, and it goes like this. Does the film include two women talking? Are they talking about something other than men? If you answered yes to those two questions, it passes the test. Simple, but surprisingly few films pass the test. Die Hard passes, great film. Chuck to India passes. Lagan, one of the best films of all time, passes, but only just. Star Wars, fail. Lord of the Rings? Fail. We might run a similar test for ancient texts. And the test would have to be simple. It would be something like women speaking or singing. How many ancient texts pass? Well, not many, but surprisingly, the Vedic texts of ancient India pass. And they pass quite well. In fact, the oldest of the Vedic texts, the Rig Veda, has plenty of stuff written by women. There are hymns from a philosopher who wants to find a husband for herself. There's the sage married to her ascetic husband, her verse is full of talk of desire, lust, sex. And it's not all women talking about men either. Speech herself is personified as a woman in these hymns. The exact number of hymns written by women in the Rig Veda is debated, but there may be around 27 female authors, in the Rig Veda alone that is. I don't know of any other text of such age, such antiquity, written by women let alone one where the personalities of so many different women come across quite so forcefully. So far as the evidence goes then, the early Vedic world was a world where women were highly educated, respected, and they had some authority in society. They were married reasonably late after their education, and they were married to a man who was equally well-educated, so they had someone they could debate with on issues of philosophy and the meaning of life and so forth. And they performed sacrifices. It's probably going a little bit too far to say this was a golden age for women, but it seems pretty sweet when you put it against any other major ancient culture anywhere else in the world. Now, pretty much all historians agree that a few centuries later, by the time of the second series of this podcast, first century AD and thereabouts, things had changed. But historians radically disagree on anything beyond that. For some historians, that period, our period, was the start of the patriarchy. And for other historians, it was the, the glory of Indian culture. And the two sorts of historians really do seem worlds apart. Here's a couple of quotes, both from Indian historians, just to get the flavour of how far apart they really are. So one historian wrote, Now if women themselves are looked upon as a commodity, as possession or property, one does not expect them to enjoy any freedom to handle property or wealth. Society, this is society around this period, was afraid to treat them as human individuals. In other words, this is where the patriarchy started. Here's a quote from the other side. Women in this time, they're really the equal halves of men. Society's a tendency to treat them as a lesser nowadays. It is, however, a matter of great pride and glory to us that the Indian nation, right from the dawn of human civilization, never took advantage of this biological weakness of women to subject them to unwarrantable social and political disabilities. Now, this debate puts me in a pretty tight spot. I just want to know what life was like for women in ancient India. And I'm not qualified to sort out debate between these angry historians, and I'm not inclined to either. But I think I probably should lay my cards on the table. 
state my position, reveal my bias, if you like. I would not want to be a woman in ancient history anywhere in the world. But if I had to be an ancient woman, it would be in ancient India. And if you want to know more of my thoughts about feminism, you're going to have to pay some large university fees and then come to my lectures. Before we get going, a quick word of warning. We're going to discuss some adult matters in this episode. Don't worry, it's all going to be in delicate terms, nothing I wouldn't say to my grandmother. If you have children, though, that you haven't explained the birds and the bees to, then don't let them listen to this podcast. Come to think of it, if you are a child and you haven't had the birds and the bees explained to you yet, then maybe get your parents to do that first. Now I've caused trouble for some parents. Everyone else, listen on. Bada was an ancient Indian woman, and she had fallen in love with a robber. The robber had been caught, but she managed to persuade her parents to pay for the robber to be freed. He was freed, and the two got married. But Bada had made a mistake, because the robber was, well, the robber was a robber, and he took her to the top of a cliff, and he tried to, he tried to rob her. She pled for her life, he wasn't interested. So she said, okay, fine, I'll give you everything you want. Just give me one last hug before you go. And he said, okay. So she opened her arms to hug him, moved towards him, and then promptly pushed him off the cliff to his death. Well, she couldn't go back to her parents after that. So she left, and she wandered through the forest. She teamed up with a group of people. Eventually, she became a Jain. And she became a champion debater. Whenever she made her way through the forest to a town... She would take a rose apple branch and plant it in the ground by the gate. And that was her symbol. That was her challenge to anyone, try and beat me in a debate. You'll get what's coming to you. So one day she came to a town and she planted the branch outside the gate as usual. And a famous Buddhist monk was passing by. And he said to some boys, hey, come over here. What, what, what does that branch mean? And they told him that's the symbol of Bada. That's her challenge to anyone to try and beat her in debate. So the monk said, okay, okay. Well, why don't you just go over and stamp all over that branch? That was very much challenge accepted. So a debate was arranged between Bada and the monk. And Bada went first and she asked the monk a bunch of questions, but he could answer all of them. And then it was his turn to question. And he asked her just one simple question. What is the one? Now, this is, I think you can agree, a rather difficult question. And Bada had no answer. Even worse, the monk refused to tell her the right answer until she became a Buddhist nun. So that's what she did. She went up to Vulture Peak where the Buddha was, the Buddha was still alive at this point, and bowed before him, and she became a Buddhist nun and one of his greatest students. And in fact, we can hear Bada's own voice because she left a poem, it's collected in a much later anthology of poems of Buddhist nuns, and the poem goes like this. I travelled before in a single cloth, with shaven head covered in dust, thinking of faults in the faultless, while in the faulty seeing no faults. When done was the day's abiding, I went to Mount Vulture Peak and saw the stainless Buddha, by the order of the bhikkhus revered. Then before him my hands in Anjali, humbly I bowed down on my knees. Come, Buddha, he said to me, and thus was I ordained. Debt-free, I travelled for fifty years, in Anga, Magda, and Vajji, in Kasi and Kusala too, living on the arms of the land, 
that lay supporter, wise man indeed, may many merits accrue to him, who gave a robe to Buddha, for free of all ties is she. If we were judging things purely by Buddha's story, marriage in ancient India was a cruel thing, something to be escaped from, and the, place to, the way to escape from it was to become a nun. The thing is, though, that that's just one story. What's more, it's a story that's written for nuns who are trying to convert women into becoming nuns, into joining their community. So it's naturally going to give not the complete picture. So let's take a closer look at the fate of women in ancient Indian marriage and also the fate of women who became nuns. According to the law books that were around the first century AD, a girl should get married young. Very young, as in not long after their first period. In fact, the father must arrange their marriage between three months and three years after the first period. And he had plenty of motivation to get his daughter married off so young. Because every time they menstruated after that, the father deserved punishment. That's really, really young, although it's somewhat in line with other ancient cultures. Actually, though, it was probably pretty rare for children to get married that young in ancient India. This might have been one of those times where the law books say one thing and pretty much everyone does something else. Because most of the folk sources and many of the tales of individual marriages, where we actually know the people, they seem to have got married at a much later stage in life. It seems to have been standard to get married around 16 years old for both boys and girls. And that's in line with earlier Vedic traditions. Earlier Vedic traditions are strongly against child marriage. You're supposed to be educated before you get married. By the by, 16 is also in line with the UK and the USA law about minimum age of marriage, although it's lower than the usual limits in modern-day India. Suppose then that you're a young woman, you've gone through education, but now you are going to be married. What would it be like? Well, if you were doing things in the most proper legally sanctioned way, your father would give you away. And in return for giving you away, he might accept a couple of bullocks from the groom. The bullocks were symbols of fertility. Your father might also get the young man to promise not to marry another woman. Polygamy was pretty common and he might be worried about it. And he might also accept a dowry from the groom. Yep, that's right. In modern India, dowry is still sometimes paid, though it's highly illegal. And in modern India, the bride's family pays the dowry. But in ancient India, it was the other way around. The groom paid the dowry to the bride's family. And even then, it was considered a pretty suspicious thing. In fact, according to the same law book which mentions this form of marriage, even the lowest caste people just shouldn't consider doing this, because it's basically selling your daughter, and that's not right. So your father's going to give you away. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you will have an arranged marriage of the sort Westerners seem so scared of. In fact, many women in ancient India got to choose their own husbands. If you were from the Kshatriyavana, the Kshatriya caste for example, you would likely get a chance to take part in what's called the self-choice. Self-choice is a little ceremony, I suppose, and the, the far, what would happen was the father would invite a bunch of eligible men uh, round to your house, and you would choose from amongst them. The men might be asked to take part in a competition, and you'd have to choose the winner, but at least sometimes you'd get to choose who you liked. And quite often, your father wouldn't even be involved in the shortlist of men to invite around. Because all the way back to prehistoric times, it would be your brother who was the one putting you in touch with the potential suitors. That makes it tough on women without brothers, I suppose. 
Sometimes, though, women would go about getting a husband entirely on their own. This happened back in the time of the Rig Veda. One of the hymns of the Rig Veda is a female sage asking God for a husband. It also happens in the epics. In the Mahabharata, there's a story of a woman called Savitri, and I'm not going to attempt to give the story properly here, but the outline's pretty clear. She was so wonderful in so many ways that all the men were scared off and she just couldn't find a husband. I know, tough problem to have. So what she did was turn to ritual. She fasted and she went through all the proper ceremonies. Her father is around in the background and he's offering his support, but he's basically taking no part in this process. He says, choose whoever you want. And so she does. In fact, she chooses a man who is destined to die a year and a day in the future. And her father's understandably a bit worried about her choice. After all, he's going to die in a year and a day. Who's going to look after her? But she's unpersuaded. Once my husband has been chosen by me, she says, I will not choose a second. Once resolved by my mind, it is announced by my speech. Afterwards, it will be done by my action. My mind is my authority. That's pretty forceful stuff. Her father relents and gives her to the boy in marriage. How typical was all this? If you were a woman in ancient India, what are the chances you'd get to choose a husband for yourself? Well, it's very hard to say. A huge number of women in stories, famous nuns and heroines and so forth in the epics, all choose for themselves in one form or another. Maybe even most of them do. But then these are figures who make it to the books. They're wealthy, they're often Kshatriyas, and we know that Kshatriyas were especially likely to choose their own husband. So they're probably not representative of women as a whole in ancient India. So at a guess, choosing your own husband was common enough, but it wasn't the default. And anyway, alongside your father giving you away, there were some much more worrying ways of getting married. There was Gandharan marriage. Gandharan marriage didn't involve your dad or the groom's dad or any parent at all. You and the boy just decided to get married and you give yourself away to him. We've already met this form of marriage, actually, way, way back in the very first podcast, episode 1.0. The marriage of Shakuntala to the king was one of these. The king assures Shakuntala that she doesn't have to wait for her father to get back. She can give herself in marriage. And Shakuntala is very uncertain at first, but she gets some promises from the king. She lays down some pretty tough terms, and then she agrees to give herself away without waiting for her father to give her. So it happened, at least in some legends, but this sort of thing is very strongly disapproved of in the law books, on the grounds that it's driven by lust rather than good sense. You want your, your father and your family around you making sure you're not making a mistake. You're not marrying some robber, which would be a crazy thing to do, Bada. But that's not the worst form of marriage. Things get a lot worse than that. Because there's what's called demon marriage. And demon marriage is pretty much as bad as it sounds. The man comes up to the woman and he's riding in a chariot on his own. He announces who he is and what his intentions are. I'm Joe and I'm going to marry Tracy unless any of you stop me. That sort of thing. Then anyone who tries to stop him, he fights and he defeats. The fighting, by the way, counts as a sort of dowry, a sort of payment in brave deeds. And after he's beaten everyone who's trying to stop him, he picks up the bride, puts her on the chariot and they endure a long and dangerous journey back to his house and then they're married. Now, this demon marriage, this sounds a lot like straightforward kidnapping, but it isn't. 
There's ritual to be observed. There's that bride price to be paid, albeit in terms of fighting people. Someone can't just rock up with their army and grab a woman. That's treated as kidnapping in exactly the way it would be today. In fact, there are stories of that happening in ancient India, and it's absolutely forbidden. Demon marriage wasn't that. Nonetheless, it doesn't seem like a good state of affairs at all. Now, it's possible that when demon marriage did occur, it was mostly a sort of excuse, that it was actually done with the consent of all parties. What was going on here, perhaps, was that Shatras, people from the Shatravana, they weren't allowed to accept gifts. And so they weren't allowed to have a father give her, his daughter to them. And so winning a wife by combat was a way to get married that satisfied the law and also satisfied the demands of their Varna. Certainly at least one of the demon marriages in the epics, one of the, one of the stories, is like this. Right? There's no actual fighting. The whole thing is the idea of the bride's brother. And the bride seems to be in on the deal too. Other historians treat demon marriage as much less civilised, as sort of a relic of a more barbarous age. The thing to remember, though, is that demon marriage was very, very strongly disapproved of. It was described in the law books, but that doesn't mean that they approved of it. After all, kidnapping is mentioned in our law, law books too, but that doesn't mean we think it's okay. But there was yet another sort of marriage, and it was the worst sort of marriage. It's downright evil, almost unspeakable. And here, the man would approach a woman who is asleep or drunk, and this is just rape, and it seems to have been treated as such. But let's suppose you avoid the terrible forms of marriage, and you get a good match. The marriage celebrations are upon us. They're going to be quite long, and they contain pretty much the sort of thing you'd expect to see if you've been to Hindu weddings, or for that matter, seen any Bollywood film. There's an offering to the fire, the bride and groom will go around the fire, there's a vow to live happily and be faithful, there's a ritual where the bride and the groom enter their new house, and then we have loads of partying and feasting and so forth. But without going into all of that, let's cut it short, because we started out with a choice whether to get married or to be a nun, and we've yet to see the other side of that choice. We want to find out what it was like to be a nun in ancient India. So we're going to consider becoming a nun. And we're going to consider joining the Buddhist nuns. That's not our only option. We could become a Jain nun. Jains accepted women, and a woman can be an Arya just as much as a man in Jainism. But there seem to have been more women in Buddhism, more women in the Buddhist Sangha, uh, with Buddhist nuns perhaps making up a third of the ordained community. It's actually quite a surprise that Buddhism had so many women, because the Buddha himself was not really into the whole idea of having nuns. In fact, he was positively against it for quite a while, to all appearances. The Buddha's aunt had asked to become a nun, and the Buddha outright refused. She asked again, and he refused again. So she asked again, and he refused again. Clearly, the aunt wasn't getting what she wanted. It wasn't working too well. So she tried a different tack. The Buddha went off to a distant place and his aunt gathered together some friends and they shaved their heads. They put on the yellow garments of monks and they went on a long walk all the way to where the Buddha was now. And there, the aunt and her friends stood outside, dusty, bedraggled, feet bleeding with blisters, hoping to become nuns. The Buddha heard that they were outside and he said no again three times. But why? Can't women attain enlightenment? Someone asked him. Yes, they can, said the Buddha. 
Then why not ordain them? He was asked. Well, okay, he said. If they accept the eight conditions, then they are nuns. And that's how the Order of Nuns was finally founded by Buddha's own aunt. The eight conditions the Buddha mentioned, the ones which all nuns had to agree to, they were actually pretty severe. It was stuff like this. All nuns are subordinate to all monks, even if the nun has been dead a hundred years and the monk has only ordained yesterday. Nuns need to monks to supervise them. They need to meet up with a monk every month. And also they need to stay with monks during the rainy season. Every year, nuns must ask if anyone suspects them of doing anything. Nuns cannot give advice or admonition to monks, but monks can give advice or admonition to nuns. There are a few more technical rules, but you get the picture. And the picture is that being a nun is not a very attractive option in a way. But that picture can't be quite right. Because quite clearly, lots and lots of women became Buddhist nuns. So what's going on here? Well, I'm not going to try to work out what was going on behind the Buddha's refusals. We can actually think of plenty of good practical reasons for his reluctance, but we might try to work out what was going on in the minds of some of the women becoming nuns. And plenty of those women fled to the Sangha, fled to become nuns to avoid terrible marriages or other desperately bad family life. Remember Bada, the woman who pushed her husband off a cliff. Or another nun who wrote happily, How wonderfully free from kitchen drudgery, free from the harsh grip of hunger, from empty cooking pots, and free too of that unscrupulous man. Nuns singing of her delight at being free from family life. But not all nuns were driven to the Sangha by trying to escape from bad family life. Sometimes women joined just because they wanted enlightenment or simply because it was the right thing to do. In fact, women sometimes joined the Sangha with their husbands, so they weren't escaping bad married life at all. There was another woman, she was also called Bada, and she lived with her husband so long as his parents were alive, so he could look after them. And after his parents died, they both chose to become ordained Buddhists. He became a monk, and she became a nun. She left us a poem about it. Son of the Buddha, an heir is he, great Kasapa, Kasapa was her husband, his mind serene collected. Vision of previous lives is his, heaven and hell he penetrates. The ceasing of rebirth he has obtained, and supernormal knowledge he has mastered. With these three knowledges possessed by him, he is a Brahmin true of threefold knowledge. So has she too, Bada the Kapilani, gained for herself the threefold knowledge and has vanquished death, having bravely vanquished Mara and his host. It is the last formation of the body that she bears. Seeing the world's deep misery, we both went forth, and are now both free of cankers with well-tamed minds. Cooled of passions, we have found deliverance. Cooled of passions, we have found our freedom. Or take another nun, who is called Patakara. She lost her husband and also her sons and her parents. And she became a nun and she brought comfort and joy, it said. She spoke to women and she persuaded them to worship at her feet and become nuns. These stories of nuns and their poems are collected in a book called The Verses of Elder Nuns. It's a later book, but it's a book by women for women. 
And it's a book that definitely passes the Bechendal test. It tells of the great heroines of Buddhism, nuns from all corners of life, from queens to commoners, giving their poems. And what these poems do, even better than the writing of monks probably, is depict the struggle for nirvana. They also have a concern with nature, which much more closely resembles the carvings at Sanchi than some of the works of monks. So the standard story that historians tell about Buddhism is that it started out quite patriarchal, and then it became less so, with nuns gaining prestige and authority. And that seems to match the facts we've seen so far. But hold on, because there are a couple of caveats. For one thing, nuns never really got as much praise as lay folk from the Buddhist authorities. If you think, who's the most famous Buddhist woman? Well, you might have guessed it would be the Buddha's aunt. After all, she founded the Order of Nuns, and she was related to the Buddha. But it wasn't. It wasn't her, and it wasn't either the Buddhas or any of the other nuns that we've mentioned. It was a laywoman, someone who never became a nun. Instead, what she did was donated a large amount of money to Buddhist causes. Her name was Vishaka, by the way. So nuns didn't really have this hugely prestigious role within Buddhism. And the other caveat is that things are not going to be good for Buddhist nuns in India for all that long. By the 8th century, a Chinese pilgrim will come to visit India to pick up some Buddhist texts, and he will be appalled that nuns in India are so impoverished that they're barely able to eat. They just didn't have the economic support that nuns in China did. So, there we have it. That's our choice. Marriage or become a nun. And that pretty much was the only choice for most ancient Indian women. Some women seem to have grown old as maidens never married. At least there's a word in Sanskrit for that. But not being plugged into the community either by marriage or by ordination must have been a very tough life indeed. Now, I don't know what you're going to choose, whether you're going to choose becoming a nun or becoming a wife. But let's suppose for the moment that you chose to get married. What would your life be like day to day? Well, back in the days of the Rig Veda, you could expect to wield really quite a lot of authority in your husband's home. Go to your husband's home, the new bride is told, and be mistress of all, and exercise your authority over all in that house. Unite yourself with your husband. Exercise your authority in this, your house, until old age. Another passage says, May you have influence over your father-in-law and your mother-in-law, and be queen over your sister-in-law and brother-in-law. So here we have the woman of the household having authority even over male members of the household. But that was back in the time of the Rig Veda. Did that still apply in the centuries around the 1st century AD? Were women still the authority in the home? We can start to guess at the answer by looking at the inscriptions of royal families. One of them puts the chief queen in pride of place, over and above the various brothers and even above the crown prince. Frankly, though, that's getting too much based on too little evidence. It's just one inscription from just one royal family. But there is other evidence, too. It's evidence from the law books. The law books help us. Actually, the law books don't help us all that much, not because they don't say anything, but because they say too much. They say things which seem to contradict themselves, and we don't know what to think. The most famous, the Code of Manu, seems to show that women had authority. 
By the way, I know that all of this stuff about the Code of Manu and so forth is very politically charged ninja right now. So I'm just going to stick very closely to claims that are made by major historians. That's more than one historian. And apologies for offending anyone, if I have. So Manu says that a house where women are honoured, that's a house where the gods are pleased to dwell. And also says he also says that women are to be treated as a goddess, that they're not a commodity. Instead, they are gifted by God. So on the one hand, it seems to treat women with reverence, the sort of reverence that might come with authority. But on the other hand, it also says that women are not fit for independence. It says they must, they must be controlled first by their father, and then after that by their husband, and they're old age by their children. They're never fit to control themselves. And it says things that sound worse than that too. In our period, women, both in the law books and the Buddhist texts, are seen as untrustworthy. In several places, readers are told to distrust all women, because we're told that all of them are wicked and cruel. And most of all, they're all lustful. They're never satisfied with sex. Now, the lustful thing might be a bit of a surprise from the modern point of view, because we tend to think of men as the lustful ones, as wanting nothing but sex, men as treating people badly because of their sex drives. But actually, pretty much everyone in ancient India made the same assumption, not about men, but about women. There are stories in the Jataka tales, those Buddhist folk tales, of women marrying five princes and then still not being satisfied and committing adultery with a hunchback servant. Actually, though, that's not a tale I'm going to tell. In fact, I'm not going to tell any of those tales about lustful women. Because this was probably mostly just husbands being worried about being cuckolded monks trying to stave off temptation to break their celibacy. And frankly, all of this evidence still leaves us in the dark about the lives of the real wives of ancient India. The relationships between husbands and wives went on behind closed doors, I mean, literally. Naturally, they're hidden from the eye of history. But perhaps we can get the beginning of an idea of what married life was like, by looking at the role of women in economics and religion, looking at the public side of things. Let's talk about economics first. As a wife, you have some economic power. You may well have control over the household purse. Even the law books say that women are to be given the task of saving and spending money. So women are typically in charge of the household economy. And in fact, there are plenty of tales and laws about women getting into debt. So presumably women could spend regularly on their own recognizance, so to speak. It wasn't just spending and saving and managing the household economy. Plenty of women could also work themselves. In fact, the Buddha recommended that women learn their husband's trades so they could take on the business in dire circumstances if something happened to their husband. And this ideal that the woman can just take over the husband's business if needs be, that reappears quite a few times all over the place in ancient India. But it wasn't just women standing on the sidelines waiting to step into the fray if needs be. Plenty of women actually worked. We have a donation and inscription by a caravan leader who's a woman. And that's quite an adventurous life if you think about it. Other women were dancers, courtesans, prostitutes. We could have had a whole separate podcast about them. Plenty of poorer women spun wool or wove cotton and so forth to get by. So as a woman, you might be earning money yourself. But nonetheless, that money, strictly speaking, belonged to your husband. 
As a wife, you would have had money of your own, not an inheritance from a biological parent. Um, women sometimes, it's said, couldn't inherit at all in ancient India, but some law books say that if you've got no brothers, you can get some of your money, or other law books say that your brother should pass off some of the inheritance to you. In any case, women weren't going to inherit that much from their parents. But they had another source of money. They had money from their wedding. When you got married, you were given an economic pool called the Stridhana. It was given to you at the wedding, both from your biological family and from your husband's family. It included physical wealth, ornaments, maybe also coins and more liquid assets. And this, the Stridhana, that was yours. Your husband could only borrow from it when he was starving or some other great calamity had fallen. And even then, he had to repay it afterwards with interest. And these Stridhanas, they could be really quite big. There's technically a legal upper limit of 2,000 punas, which is probably a decent amount of money, but not huge. But actually, many Stridhanas were much bigger than that. It's said that the great Buddhist laywoman Vishaka built monasteries and food for 100 monks a day just from her Stridhana alone. So as a wife, you have this Stridhana, this wealth of your own, your husband can't really touch, and you can do what you like with it. By the way, I don't think we should get too smug that our own modern societies treat women much better than ancient Indian societies. In many ways they do, in some ways they don't. A major complaint of one of the ancient historians is that in ancient India, housework wasn't treated as paid, it wasn't even thought of as important to the economy. But you know, it's just the same today. We measure the output of a country in terms of GDP, gross domestic product. And what that does is kind of gather together all of the productivity, all of the work done in all the jobs, even the kind of hobbies in the country. But there's one thing, pretty much the only sort of work that doesn't count as productive, that doesn't count towards GDP, and that's housework. Housework by housewives. In fact, there's an old joke in economic textbooks. If you want to lower your country's GDP, then marry your cleaner, because then she's going to become your wife and her work won't any longer count as productive. And that tells us two things. First, economic textbooks aren't very funny. But second, that not as much has changed as we'd like to think. Anyway, not all of life is about work and money, because there's religion too. And here, ancient Indian women were absolutely essential. They were key. They were central. Brahminical orthodoxy said that there was no distinction between the husband and wife. And as we hear from several texts, the wife is half the man. They're in some sense the same body. So the wife was required for religious ritual just as much as the husband. Women had their own special place in the sacrificial area. And they had to be there for sacrifices. In fact, sometimes women couldn't be there for sacrifices. They weren't allowed for a couple of days during their period and for 10 days after childbirth, which sounds like it's a nice bit of relief, actually. But their presence at the sacrifice was so essential that their absence was a big issue. In some texts, it said, if there's no wife, then there's no ritual. You have to rearrange the whole thing. In other texts, there are suggestions that you can temporarily get a stand-in, a son or a priest, but it's tricky. So the wife is essential to the sacrifice, and actually, we're using the word wife. The word wife just means woman, I think. That's the etymology of it. But the word that's always used in these contexts of the wife being part of the sacrifice in ancient India is grander than just woman. It's putni, which is the feminine of pati, lord. It implies authority, control. 
mistress in a normal sense without the weird connotations. The women in rituals, they weren't just some sort of passive bystander, a sort of hanger-on while the husband went around doing the religious thing. They were active. They were doing things in the ritual. In fact, they could perform the daily offering around the domestic fire themselves, even without the husband. And it said that young women were forbidden to act as the priest in a ceremony, and that seems to imply that older women were able to act as the priest. So some women could take on the role of Hota, the priest, in some of the sacrifices. And even where the woman didn't take on that very central role, she was every bit as important, every bit as active as the man. This couple comes together mutually. Together they establish the fires. Together they produce offspring. Therefore she is a half-sharer, says one of the texts. This same didn't apply to all rituals, of course. There were rituals where the woman wasn't present, but it applied to the vast, overwhelming majority. So much for economics and religion. What happened if you stepped out into the public sphere? Well, there's a continuing pressure you can get from the rule books that women really weren't allowed outside. They kind of stayed at home. You can get this impression from the epics too. Take, for example, Sita. Now, Sita is the ideal woman. She's the wife of Rama in the Ramayana. And from the Ramayana, you can get the impression that Sita spent all of her life indoors and that no one really saw her. At a certain point in the story, Rama is expelled from the palace and he's made to go into exile in the forest. And Sita insists very forcefully indeed and against her husband's protestations that she's going with him. The Ramayana then says, well, it's a great shame in a way because no one saw Sita before. She's kind of unsullied by other eyes. You get the impression she was just stuck in the palace her whole life. But that, very clearly, just wasn't the way that most ancient Indian women lived. If you look at sculptures from the period, women are prominent. They're there, talking to kings, pronouncing on issues, doing business, taking on very public roles. And sometimes women took on the very highest role politically. We know of queens who had de facto control of their empires. And, most of all, we have in South India the records, the writings of very educated female poets. Poets who were advisors to kings and emissaries, ambassadors. We still have those poems. But that is a story for another episode. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I'm going to really push it by reading some of that very controversial stuff from the Code of Manu, from the Manu Smriti. Going to read a bit, you might call the nice bit about women, and then a bit of the other bit too. It goes like this. Women must be honoured and adored by their fathers, brothers, husbands and brothers-in-law who desire their own welfare. Because where women are honoured, there the gods are pleased. But where they are not honoured, no sacred right yields rewards. Where the female relations live in grief, the family soon wholly perishes, but that family where they are not unhappy ever prospers. The houses on which female relations not being duly honoured pronounce a curse perish completely as if destroyed by magic. So men who seek their own welfare should always honour women on holidays and festivals with gifts of ornaments, clothes and lovely food. 
In that family where the husband is pleased with his wife and the wife with her husband, happiness will be assuredly lasting. For if the wife is not radiant with beauty, she won't attract her husband. And if she has no attractions for him, no children will be born. On the other hand, if the wife is radiant with beauty, the whole house is bright. But if she is destitute of beauty, all will appear dismal. By low marriages, by omitting the performance of sacred rites, by neglecting the study of the Veda, and by a reverence towards Brahmanas, great families sink low. Here's another quite different tone section from the Manusmriti. Hear now the duties of women. By a girl, by a young woman, or even by an aged one, nothing must be done independently, even in her own house. In childhood, a female must be subjected to her father, in youth to her husband, when her lord is dead to her sons. A woman must never be independent. She must not seek to separate herself from her father, husband or sons. By leaving them, she would make both families contemptible, as both her own family and her husband's family. The woman must be always cheerful, must be clever in the management of her household affairs, careful in cleaning her utensils, and economic in expenditure. Him to whom her father may give her, or her brother with her father's permission, she shall obey, as long as he lives, and when he is dead, she must not insult his memory. For the sake of procuring good fortune to brides, the recitation of benedictory texts and the sacrifice to the Lord of creatures are used at weddings. But the betrothal by the father or the guardian is the cause of the husband's dominion over his wife. The husband who wedded her with sacred texts always gives happiness to his wife, both in season and out of season, and in this world and in the next. Though destitute of virtue, or seeking pleasure elsewhere, or devoid of good qualities, Yet a husband must constantly be worshipped by a good and faithful wife. No sacrifice, no vow, no fast must be performed by a woman apart from their husbands. If a wife obeys her husband, she will for that reason, and that reason alone, be exalted in heaven. That's it for this week. It's been a rather sensitive, tricky topic, and it's also been rather incomplete, maybe a bit unsatisfying. We didn't talk about widows, or about divorce, or about prostitutes, or about female spies, or a woman's education, or childbirth. There was an awful lot more we could have covered, in fact, several episodes worth. But hopefully, we've got the beginnings of a silhouette of what life was like for a fair few women in ancient India. If you've been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Sneha Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website and in the description of the podcast. Have a great week. Take care.